If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 3. We continue our study through this wonderful gospel. And today we start chapter 3. Over the last couple of months, uh, we have been studying this gospel verse by verse, expository preaching. And the first two chapters of Luke's gospel deal with the, the birth narratives of Jesus and, and his cousin, John the Baptist. And throughout these two chapters, the human author of this gospel, uh, Dr. Luke, has intentionally set John the Baptist and Jesus Christ um, together, side by side. And you'll notice as we open chapter 3 this morning that Luke continues to do this as he describes the beginning of their public ministries. After chapter 3, John the Baptist disappears from uh, Luke's gospel except for one brief incident later in Luke chapter 7, which we'll look at. But the reason this happens is because I think Luke wants to focus exclusively on the person and the work of Jesus from chapter 4 onwards. However, here in chapter 3, John and Jesus are still connected together as they, as they each begin their public ministries. So we'll read together this morning from Luke chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 10. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judah, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonia, sorry, I practiced that and I still got it wrong, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axes lay to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. Thankful, Lord, that we do know what to do. Thankful, Lord, that we know we need to repent of our sins as we will study today. But we can't do this, Lord, without the help of the Holy Spirit who moves us to repentance, who replaces the, the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. We pray this morning, Lord, that He would do that work amongst us. We pray this morning, Lord, that the Spirit of God would help us to understand your word and would help us to respond appropriately. 
So we pray for your help this morning, Lord, as we tackle this subject. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So for a time, while Kerry and I ministered in India, we worked at a mission hospital as counselors for their community health department. But one day, a father brought his son to the hospital who had a, a cancerous tumor that had developed in his mouth. And the doctors told the father that the only course of treatment was for them to surgically remove this as well as a large portion of, of his tongue. Of course, the father was horrified and he refused to listen to the doctor and his advice. He said that he would never allow his son to be disfigured like that. And the doctors tried in vain to convince the father that his tumor was spreading rapidly into the boy's throat and if they did not do the surgery, that he would end up suffocating and die. But despite all the advice, despite all the warnings, despite the, the good intentions of the doctors, to obviously to save the boy's life, the father took his son out of the hospital. And we heard the very next day that the boy had died. He had suffocated just as the, the doctors had predicted. And our scripture passage today reminds me a lot of that story. Now we come to a portion of scripture like this and we can respond in one of two ways. We can be offended and respond negatively like the, the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees did. Or we can humble ourselves and let the sharp-edged word of God do the necessary work of removing this cancerous sin that will eventually destroy us if it is not dealt with. We need the correct diagnosis and we need the correct treatment. We need the truth. And God's message for us through John the Baptist is because of God's coming wrath, we must make sure that our repentance is sincere, that our repentance is genuine, that our repentance is true and not false. So let me show you the context this morning. My first point is from verse 1 to 2. And last week, if you were at the the Rock Conference, uh, Dr. Peter Williams reminded us that, that we can trust the Gospels because they are rooted in actual history. And that's exactly what is happening here in the first couple of verses. I think that's what Luke is doing here by helping us see the context, that it is rooted, in fact, in, in history. And these leaders mentioned in the first two verses were, were real. They were actual historical figures. And Luke, he lists here seven leaders to show us, of course, that the gospel is, in fact, true. This is not a fairy story that, that illustrates a spiritual truth or some moral lessons. It is true history that happened at a particular time and at a particular place. So Luke begins at the top there. Look at verse 1. Tiberius Caesar, he was the, the stepson of Augustus Caesar. And Luke mentions him to remind us that Rome had dominion over Israel at this time, but he was not a godly man. Pontius Pilate was the other Roman governor of Judea, and he would become infamous for delivering Jesus over to be crucified. And then there's Herod Antipas, who was the son of the wicked Herod the Great. 
And he would later imprison and then behead John the Baptist. And Herod's brother, Philip, is this I mentioned there, he ruled over a region to the, the east and the north of Galilee. Lysanias was a, a governor of Abilene, uh, further to, to, the no, to, to the northeast. And the prominent spiritual Jewish leaders were Annas and Caiaphas. And Luke mentions them as sharing one priesthood. Of course, these are Jewish leaders that are, are mentioned. Annas had been a high priest from AD 6 to AD 15, but he had been deposed by the, the Roman authorities. And several of his sons, and eventually his son-in-law, Caiaphas, would replace him. And, and the two offices were, were often referred to under one priesthood. Even though this was a spiritual office, it is clear from the New Testament that neither of these men were really concerned about spiritual matters. They were politicians who, who cared about their own power and their own status. So beside the, the historical lesson that we have here, I believe the names are mentioned for a reason. And Luke is really painting a, a picture for us. He wants us to understand the political and the spiritual conditions when John began his ministry. It was in this corrupt political and spiritual situation with, with Israel under Rome's thumb that, that John and Jesus began their ministries. And God's covenant people were under this cruel political and, and military uh, domination of the, the Roman Empire. And furthermore, Israel's spiritual leaders were also corrupt, and that didn't help the, the situation either. There was widespread biblical ignorance, and there was apostasy, and the people longed for a political and, and military leader who would bring freedom. And they were praying for this Messiah who would do that. And they hoped that God's Messiah would do this for them in a physical way. Of course, it had been 400 years since there had been a prophet in Israel as well. And the prophets would call the people to spiritual renewal and to reform. And this hadn't happened for 400 years. And they were really in a bad situation. There was a bad circumstances that they were living in. And bad times abound everywhere, isn't it? But times are especially bad when there is no word from God, where there is no word from the Lord. And those who knew God and waited for the consolation of Israel, they must have at times despaired. But they knew that what they needed was not better politicians. They needed a word from God, which leads to my second point. We see the preparation in verse 3 to verse 6. In verse 3, John's preaching is described as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So remember back in chapter 1, the angel Gabriel had told Zechariah that John's ministry would be, he said the scriptures, uh, we see it in Luke chapter 1, verse, verse 16 and 17. The Bible says, He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So Angel Gabriel's words here explain what Luke means by repentance in chapter 3 there. Notice there in Luke 1, notice the repetition of the word turn. 
he will turn many of the Israelites to the Lord their God. Look at the next verse. He will turn the hearts of the fathers, and he will turn the hearts of the disobedient. That's what repentance really means. The word turn is a good definition for repentance. There is a turning of direction of our life and the affections of our hearts so that we become more orientated on, on God and, the and we end up loving the things that, that He loved. Remember the church in Thessalonica, they were known because they had turned from worshiping their idols to serve the true and living God. There was a proper repentance. There was a, a genuine repentance that took place. They were going in this direction and they turned to worship the true and the living God. This is the meaning of repentance, a turning of the direction of our life. You know, I often pray for us as a church that the Lord would help us love Him more and hate our sins more. And that's a turning, isn't it? That's a, that's a repentance, that we would hate the things of the world and that we would love the, the things of, of God. That is a turning. But the turning mentioned right here is the turning of the direction of our, of our life and affections. And he calls them here, notice in John chapter 3, sorry, Luke chapter 3, John calls the Pharisees to demonstrate their repentance. He, he says it's one thing just to, to say you've repented, but it's another thing to demonstrate it in your life. And he says, he calls them to demonstrate the seriousness of their repentance by accepting baptism in the River Jordan. Now, this was a remarkable demand. Um, this was coming, remember, from the prophet John to his own countrymen, his own kinsmen, the Jewish people. Now, in the context in which John lived, baptism had one main significance among the, the Jews. It was a symbolic rite that proselytes had to go through to become Jewish. So a proselyte was obviously somebody who was a Gentile. He was a non-Jew that wanted to follow the, the faith of the Jews. And in order to do that, he had to be baptized. Any Gentile had to be baptized in order to become a Jew. Now understand the context here. John's baptism was very offensive because he was speaking to the Jews. It implied that unless the Jews were willing to repent... They were not really Jews at all and could not count on the promises of God's blessings, could not count on the covenant that God had made with his spiritual family, his spiritual chosen people. Well, to put it another way, in calling these Jews to accept baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins, John was telling the people that they cannot rely on their Jewishness for salvation. They couldn't rely on their ethnicity for salvation. They had to change their hearts towards God. This was a, this was a revolutionary, a radical message that they had not heard in 400 years. And Luke's understanding of, of John's baptism is that it implied that the way was open for Gentiles to repent. It was open for everybody to be forgiven. And the issue here was not that they converted to a, to a nationality. The issue was that they repented of their sins. This baptism 
demonstrated that. This baptism demonstrated that. Look at verse 4 to 6. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. But look at verse 4. It starts with the words, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. So Luke quotes here from Isaiah 40 verse 3 to 5. But it shows us a, that this is figurative language. This is a figurative language. And of course it's a problem with the sinful heart of man. The sinful heart of man receiving the king of king, kings and his salvation. Isaiah pictures the scene when a king announced, of course, that, that he would visit a remote village. And of course, to get to that village, there was not a, not a clear road. There was a rocky, twisted, up and down mountain trail, which was good enough for the villagers, but it was not suitable for the, the king. So the village, they, the village people had to, had to clear the road. They had to make the, the road straight. They had to fill in all the, the ravines and, and, and um, the, the potholes and level the mountains in order for the king to arrive. This is a spiritual picture. You know, living in, in India or even in South Africa or maybe the country where you're from, we learn to live with potholes in, on the roads. And we learn to, to tolerate twisted, um, rocky ravines, isn't it? But this is not physical roads that Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about our hearts here. Our hearts are full of this impurities, these potholes, these ravines of, of sin. And of course, there are mountains of pride and, and self-righteousness in the way. And we walk the crooked paths of deceit and, and falsehood. There are the rough and rocky and potholed roads of greed and, and jealousy and self-will and, and blame and, and disobedience. What Isaiah is saying is the king doesn't travel on those types of roads. The king of glory is coming. We're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. Now don't misapply this analogy. It's not teaching that we must remove every trace of sin and every trace of corruption before the king will receive us and come into our hearts. That's not what Isaiah is saying. That's not what John the Baptist is saying. Of course, we know that would be impossible. The Holy Spirit is the one who needs to convict us of our sins. The Holy Spirit is the one who has to grant us repentance. We need to recognize our spiritual condition. We need to recognize this the, the hearts, the, the, the sinful, wicked hearts that we have. We have to face the bad news about ourselves as sinners before we can welcome God's gracious salvation. Now, while studying this passage, the story of Dashrath Manji came to mind. In 2015, a Bollywood movie was released about um, his story, based on his story. And the movie was called uh, Manji the Mountain Man. It's an incredible true story of a man, Dashrath Manji, who single-handedly carved out a road from a 300-foot-tall mountain so that his people could reach a doctor in time. Now, Manji came from a small remote village 
in Bihar, North India, that was bordered on the south by, by a steep ascending quartzite ridge that prevented road access to the closest town that provided them with the amenities that they needed. And in 1960, Manji's wife was badly injured and, and died because the nearest town with the doctor couldn't be reached on time. And as a result of his experience, Manji resolved to, on his own, cut a, a roadway across the ridge to make access to this village. And he carved a, a path 100 meters long, 7.7 meters deep, and in places 9.1 meters wide to form a road from the ridge of rocks. Of course, this took him 22 years to complete. And only after he died in 2007, official roads between his village and the nearest town were eventually passed for people to use. Now, this was a gigantic effort. This was a huge effort from, from one single human being. But again, please don't misapply this analogy. No matter how amazing we think we are, or no matter how much we have achieved in this lifetime, we cannot, outside of Christ, earn any favor before God with our good works. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the analogy we have from the, the prophet Isaiah is not teaching that we must remove every trace of sin and corruption before we receive the king into our life. He's not teaching that. The Holy Spirit has to convict us of this, this awful sin so that we recognize our need for God's salvation. And again, we need to see the bad news about ourselves as sinners before we can welcome God's gracious salvation. My third point, my last point this morning is from verse 7 to 10. The message, the message, John's message to these brood of vipers. Notice that John, at this point, hasn't even spoken yet. He hasn't even spoken. Everything so far has been Luke's description and Luke's interpretation of John's ministry. Now, John finally speaks. And what we hear is confirmation of what we've already heard from Luke. See there in verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So John's question here, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Of course, this question questions the motives of the listeners, isn't it? Even though they may go through the outward ritual of, of water baptism, they still needed to examine their hearts. Were they truly repentant toward God for their, their personal sins? Or were they just following the religion? Were they just going through the, the motions? And the picture behind John's language was that when there was a, a brush fire, or when a farmer would burn the stubble from, from his field, any snakes, of course, would, would slither away and try and escape ahead of the flames. 
But as soon as the snakes were safe, they would continue with their, their normal activities, their poisonous activities, their crooked activities. Because, of course, they were, by nature, snakes. And they would follow their, their nature. And they were just trying to save their skin so that they could go on with their normal lives. And what John is doing here in this verse is warning us of the dangers of false repentance. He's warning us of the dangers of just going through the motions, just doing what you think you need to do in order to avoid the wrath of God. There is such a thing as false repentance, folks. And this is why John is emphasizing this message. Why is repentance so important? Well, of course, it's a, it's a prelude to the coming ministry of Jesus the Messiah, isn't it? Look at verse 3 again. It says, John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then in verse 8, John says the same thing to the crowds, that they must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is repeated. This message was important. Why? Why was evidence why was fruit of repentance so important? Well, think about it for a minute. Later on, John would say the Messiah, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, has come to do what? To take away the sins of the world. And the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah, is to atone for our sins, to provide the way for the forgiveness of sins, to provide a, a just and, and righteous basis whereby our loving Heavenly Father can forgive us of our sins. Now, what could possibly make our ears deaf and our hearts hard to such a, a glorious message? And the sad truth is, folks, people reject this message. People reject this wonderful good news. And the reason, I think, is because people do not adequately appreciate the truth that we need to be forgiven. And you cannot be forgiven of sin if you don't believe that you have sinned. If you don't believe that you are a sinner, you have no need for forgiveness. The religious leaders were like that. The religious leaders among John's crowd would have agreed that repentance was a good thing for the tax collectors and other sinners in the crowd, but they did not apply it to themselves because they assumed that they were basically good people. After all, they, they were the ones who, who kept the law of Moses. They were the ones who observed the religious rituals they were the ones who tithed their, their money to the temple. And besides, they were children of Abraham. God had promised to bless the seed of Abraham. They were not sinners. They knew that God would judge the heathen someday, but they failed to believe that they were in need of a Savior. That they were 
despised riches. And John, being the prophet that he was, of course, he knew differently. And he calls these children of Abraham children of vipers, children of snakes. He preaches the same message to the religious leaders as he does to the tax collectors. He preaches the same message to these religious leaders as he does to the prostitutes. The same message. You must truly repent and bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. And John cuts beneath this religious veneer, this religious mask, and says, I don't care how religious you are. I don't care about your religious background. Your heart is just as corrupt as those who are outwardly sinful. Your pride in thinking that by your own goodness you can stand in God's holy presence is just as offensive to God as the greed of the tax collectors or the immorality of the the prostitutes. God's view of the human race is, is clearly stated in the Scriptures, folks. We see it throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. But just a few verses I want to show you from the the Old Testament, from the very first book in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 8.21, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from its youth. And then in Psalm chapter 14, verse 2 and verse 3, The Lord has looked down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Psalm 51, verse 5. Psalm of David, who says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Isaiah 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Folks, please hear what the Scriptures are saying this morning. You are not a good person. I know your mother thinks you are wonderful. I know your mother thinks you are beautiful. But we are born with a sinful heart. We are born in sin. And unless we repent of that sin, we will stand before the wrath of God. According to the Encyclopedia of 7,700 illustrations. There's a story that I wanted to share with you this week. The Romans sometimes forced a, a captive to be joined face to face with the dead body. And of course, to bear this until the horrible, noxious odor and discharge eventually destroyed the, the life of the living victim. And a poet, a Roman poet during that time by the name of Virgil, he, he describes this cruel punishment. He says, The living and the dead 
at his command were coupled face to face and hand to hand until they were choked with stench in loathed embraces tied the lingering wretches pined away and died. It's a terrible image, isn't it? But I think it's an accurate image of our sinful condition. You know, that dead corpse is our own sinfulness. Just like this description, we are, we are shackled to this dead corpse. And the death will surely follow us if we are not set free. And only repentance frees us from certain death. And evidence of genuine repentance is, of course, turning away from your sin, your self-righteousness, and embracing the righteousness of Christ. Now, I remember sharing the gospel with a, with a man once who told me that he had never broken a single one of the Ten Commandments. Well, I knew right away that he had broken the Ninth Commandment, and the ninth commandment says that you shall not bear false witness, that you shall not lie. I knew he was lying because the Bible says in 1 John 1.10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. And I know God is not a liar. How many of us may not say that verbally, but yet we think that we are not bad. We are not sinners. We don't need God's forgiveness. We don't need to keep coming to Him and asking for forgiveness. You know, often 1 John 1.10 we, we use as a, an evangelical verse, isn't it? When we share the gospel with people. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and we try and share the gospel with people using that verse. But in 1 John, the apostle is writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians. He's not writing to unbelievers. And he's saying to Christians, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And we cannot think that we are righteous just because we've said a prayer. We cannot think that we are righteous just because we, we come to church. We cannot think we're righteous just because we've been baptized. Then we are guilty of doing what these these Pharisees are doing, isn't it? We're putting our faith in our religion. We're putting our faith in our works. So is your faith genuine? Is your repentance genuine? Someone who is dead in their sins carries around this dead corpse and denies their sin. They make excuses for their sin. Or they justify their, their sin in their own heart. And the obvious truth is you cannot be dead and alive at the same time. Anyone who repents of their sin is granted this new life. And of course, there is fruit that comes from this new life. There is evidence. There is genuine life there. There is a sorrow over sin. And there is a continual turning from our sin, dying to ourselves, and living for Christ. Is there that evidence in your life? And that's what John is saying here. In fact, he uses baptism to demand evidence of the fruit of their repentance. 
And these Pharisees were horrified. They were mortified that John would tell them to be baptized, to show evidence of their repentance because they refused to believe that they were sinners. And later on, in verses 10 to 14, John spells out for us what this fruit looks like, and we'll look at that later on next week. But first he gives us a warning. First he gives us a warning. Look at verse 8. John says, Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. So don't let the old serpent sow this deceptive seed in your mind. That's what he's saying. John is warning the Jews not to think like that just because they are Jews that God is obligated to bless them. So some of the Jews think that because of their, their nationality that they've got God in a, in a corner and that God must bless them and He can't pour His wrath out on them. And they can do what they want. They can live like they want. And so they think that it does not matter finally if they repent or not. And again, they're not relying on God's mercy, but they are relying on their own works. They are relying on their own nationality. And what they fail to see and what John shows them very clearly here is that God is not boxed in a corner as they think. He is able to keep His promises to Abraham and to put a stop to their boasting in their ancestry. And he says, I, I will wipe you all out. I can wipe you all out and raise up my children from the stones. I'm able to do that. If you are not willing to bear the fruits of repentance, if you are not willing to put your faith and trust in me. So verse 9 really repeats the warning in verse 7. And he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And what he's saying is don't trust in the kind of tree that you are. If there's no fruit of repentance, you will be destroyed. It doesn't matter if the tree is Jewish or, or Gentile. What matters is repentance. And the Jews are a great lesson to all of us who tend to rely on anything for our salvation other than the mercy of God. In verse 10, Luke says that the crowd asked him, What then shall we do? What then shall we do? And I think this question probably came from someone in the crowd who was at this point convicted of their sins. Someone who saw their need for a savior. And think about this for a moment. You may have expected John to, to have said, well, eat, uh, sorry, eat, eat locusts and, and wild honey and live a simple life like I do. That's what you need to do. But he didn't say that. You know, he could have said, keep the rituals in the temple faithfully. But he didn't say that. His answers are very practical here. And each answer relates to, of course, the, the second table of the law, our relationship with our neighbors, our horizontal relationship with our neighbors. As Apostle John put it, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, 
he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So John the Baptist is saying that the fruits of repentance will be seen in the way that we relate to others, especially in our day-to-day lives, especially in our workplace, especially in the school. That's where the evidence will be seen. Now, not too many years ago, a newspaper carried the story of Al Johnson, a man from Kansas, who came to faith in Christ. But what made his story remarkable was not his conversion, but that the fact that as a result of his newfound faith in Christ, he confessed to a, a bank robbery that he had participated in when he was 19 years old. Now, because the statute of limitations on the case had, had run out, Johnson could not be prosecuted for this offense. But still, he believed his relationship with Christ demanded a confession. And he voluntarily repaid his share of the, the stolen money. Now, friends, I want you to think about that for a moment. I want you to understand how powerful a demonstration of the gospel repentance is. I want you to think about your own situation with your own wife, with your own husband, with your own children, with your own relationships. Do people see the gospel demonstrated in your own life? Do they see the fruit of repentance? Do they see you willing to humble yourself and ask for forgiveness? Precisely at this point, this is where people see the greatest potential for the display of the grace of God in your lives. Do you display that to people around you? Do you realize that when the watching world sees you own up towards your, your sins, and they see that you're not making excuses, and when they see that you're not trying to deny your sin or, or justify your sin. It's at that point where the gospel is powerfully displayed in your lives. Where the fruit of repentance is seen. When people, where unbelievers hear someone own up to their sin and repent of it, it's shocking because it doesn't happen in our day doesn't happen because people don't want the gospel. But when they see it, folks, they cannot deny it. It's irrefutable. It's a manifestation of the power of the grace of God in your life. And John is calling us to a life of this kind of repentance where we own our sin and because of the mercy of God to us in Jesus Christ, we're able to accept our sin. We're able to acknowledge our sin. And we're able to ask God for forgiveness for it. And our friends and our family members that we have offended as well. Even though there may be horrible consequences, we want the power of the gospel to be displayed in our lives more than anything else. Folks, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like these brood of vipers. Display the evidence 
of the gospel in your life so that God may receive all the glory and that we may receive all the joy. John and Jesus call us to repentance. Have you repented of your sins? Let's pray. Father, I do pray this morning that the Spirit of God would help us to respond positively to your message today. Father, that we would not turn our backs from the diagnosis that you have given to us. That we would not turn our backs from the cure that you have given to us. Father, that we would humble ourselves. That we would acknowledge that yes, indeed, we are sinners who need a Savior. So Father, please do that work amongst us this morning. Grant us this repentance that leads to faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.